0: Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, and I am delighted that we have Ben Williams back on the podcast. Most of you guys are familiar and with And I'm delighted ben. to be back. Most of you guys are familiar with Ben, with his writing, with his time on the podcast. And one of the reasons I wanted to have him back was two articles that he's written in the past couple of weeks that I thought really get at a problem that I've been thinking about, that I know most people have been thinking about, now, originally the articles were precipitated by some comments that Jerry Falwell made, and uh, were those, those comments, I don't know how much time we'll spend on those, were just an opportunity to highlight how much tension there is between the different views among Christians of how the church and the state should function together. In fact, if I were going to summarize the entire uh, political Christian landscape since well before 2016, it, it would be widespread confusion over how Christians should engage in the public square. Yeah. So, yeah. Ben, if you could take us back a little ways, present kind of the problem and some possible solutions for how Christians engage in politics.
1: So, let me, yeah, I can kind of outline two example cases that I think really help to illustrate uh, what gives legs to the problem. So the first one that brought it to my attention uh, was this um, Methodist issue with uh, Jeff Sessions. Uh, So Jeff Sessions was a Methodist member and uh, not particularly popular with the more socially uh, liberal part of Methodist government hierarchy. I think that's a fair way to say it. And uh, while he was um, acting in his public office, um, involved in border security and immigration policy. There was a group of southern, um, I don't, I don't, I'll admit ignorance of how Methodists are organized, but it was a a group in some southern states, Florida, Georgia, down in that area, that uh, some of their clergy said they'd like to formally censure uh Sessions for acting in a way contrary to Methodist practice and doctrine,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, which you know is is interesting all on its own boat that podcast worthy all on its own. But you don't even have to have an opinion about that. What's interesting was the ruling that came back from their conference was that Sessions was not responsible morally uh, in the sense they wanted him to be because he was acting in his role as a public officer and an agent of the government.
0: Yeah, I think, I think one of the things that they came out and said was there's a difference between political action and personal conduct.
1: Yes, and that's where finally uh, one of my favorite Methodists, uh, Will Willimon, weighed in with his hair on fire uh, and wrote you know, this scathing article. Um, first criticizing the the bishops who were trying to criticize Sessions, because he says Methodists haven't had any doctrine for a long time, so it's a hard thing to say that he's acting contrary to Methodist doctrine, mm-hmm. which I thought was just like this gutsy thing to say to his own people. <laughs> but then he went back and said, you know, when did we decide that uh, there is some part of human life, public life, social life that's outside of the realm of Christ ordinary authority, if we can say it that way. right? And so that got me thinking about that in, in a big way. And then, yeah, Jerry Falwell uh, Jr. makes his comments in an interview that was pretty broadly circulated. I think we all know he's been very uh, vocally uh, defensive and supportive of, of, in support of Donald, President Donald Trump, and uh, this time around made some statements that were just as clear as could be that uh, the teachings of Christ do not specifically apply to how a person runs a government. Christ did not issue teachings directed at Rome. Hmm. And he even mentioned you know, Rome. So uh, he, he kind of sets that out there. And so those two stories in conjunction, um, I think, raise all these questions for us. If so to state it negatively, if Christ's teachings aren't the definitive solution for how to organize and rule a government, whose teachings are Right. Uh, what set of authority? Um, in in my fairly simple cosmology, um, you and I bicker back and forth a bit, I'm not very Reformed, but I'm at least this Reformed, that there's, there's God and the devil, and there's not supposed to be a lot of free acting agents in between, you know, but if, if, if you're not on the side of heaven, then I suppose you're in concert with hell. I mean, I, I don't know how we say government is not mandated to rule under the authority of Christ in this sense. His teachings are not applicable to our social and political life, but then not answer the question, okay, who is? Right. Or there's some other book of the Bible that answers that question that's not the normal stuff. And that, that's where I'm really hung up. Um, I don't have like a perfect solution of how... I, I think we all struggle with how to apply the Sermon on the Mount to public policy. Right. I mean, you talk about a challenge. My favorite Sermon on the Mount bit is uh, C.S. Lewis saying that he didn't like the Sermon on the Mount because... Nobody likes being punched in the face with a hammer. I mean, it's just just brutally honest and difficult text about moral life. Mm -hmm. So it's one thing to say, I don't know how to apply that to public, social, political life. But it's another thing to say, I just don't think you're supposed to. And however you apply it individually to Sessions or President Trump or Obama or anybody else in the universe, Stalin or Putin, I don't care, eventually you have to decide whether you're going to make the attempt or not, and we have apparently in some circles decided no longer to make that attempt. And that frightens me a lot. Um, Another article I wrote for the blog, Cole, uh, you may remember I said, don't compare things to the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to break my own rule and compare something to the Holocaust. (laughs) Um, But if you look at uh, Lutheran ethics in Germany during the Holocaust, This is essentially the position they took, Mm -hmm. that you could be a good citizen and live beneath the Third Reich and its authority. You could even be a soldier. You could even work at Auschwitz and go to church on Sunday because... Uh, the paradox of being a Christian meant that your political life and your Christian life didn't necessarily make a lot of sense together. Mm-hmm. And uh, they defended that point of view, and I think Christians can universally say that was a bad idea. Mm-hmm. But we seem to be making a very similar argument, and I only want to repeat: I'm not suggesting that out there in the United States somewhere is Auschwitz waiting to happen. Right. But the the rationale is similar. And that concerns me a great deal.
0: Yeah, I think I think it's I think there's this thing called Godwin's law, that is as yes. as discussions <laughs> as discussions go on the internet, like the, the limit of internet discussions is bringing up the Nazis. Like if, if it goes ah, on long enough, uh, that they, yep. they will be brought into the conversation.
1: Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I'm not accusing you of breaking Godwin's law. <laughs> I'm accusing me a little bit, but uh, you know. I, there was something that did go horribly wrong in World War II. Um, right. And the fact that Christians were involved in it is a serious indictment of us. I mean, with broad brush, you know, we Christians in Germany were not what they should have been. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer notwithstanding, what did Bonhoeffer get right? that his colleagues got wrong. Right. I think that's a really important question. The thing, too, about this is
0: I think you've highlighted the tension really well between, on the one hand, there is a struggle of trying to unite the private individual Christian life and legislating in the public sphere. So you have people like Jeff Sessions who, if I remember correctly, that whole dispute is about the border crisis or the Muslim ban or, you know, we're looking at how the yep. United States is dealing with groups of people as a country, as a political entity, and then um, beginning to kind of pluck verses out of the Bible to say, well, this is how people are supposed to act. And and on, the, on one hand, I think what people get right is they feel the discontinuity between treating a government like an, a, a ruling entity like a christian individual i don't think we can do that yeah but then at the same yeah. time if you if you try to solve that tension by saying so governments exist in this liminal space that is not subject to the you know the the visions of the kingdom of god but you know they're not the kingdom of satan either that doesn't seem yeah. very satisfying either and and if i were to make one critique on the way that we, as a social group of people, as, as Americans in, in the year 2019, envision government is we're coming to the realization through activist groups, through some would say the radical left, some would say the alt right. But as the political spectrum is polarizing, what we're coming to realize is there is no amoral space, even in politics.
1: Yes. That is what really led me into this discussion, Cole. Because, you know, my area of interest has been epistemology and philosophy of science and a little bit of ethics. I've not been a political theorist, and so this was, in a sense, kind of strange for me to dive into this. Mm -hmm. But what led me into this discussion was the question of what is secularity? Mm -hmm. And secularity does define an area, like an amoral area of human life, and we have kind of bought into that uh, at at such a subconscious level uh, that we don't even notice we're doing it, and I get that in, whether it's in philosophy of science or in ethics or political theory, it's all tied up in the same issue of we have cordoned off a realm that is not subject to Christ Mm-hmm. At all Now it's it's different to say It's not subject to Christ In the same way An individual is Right But we're actually saying It's not subject to Christ At all And that's uh, That I think Is a very dangerous Point of view Yeah that's very dangerous
0: um, So go ahead then and, and kind of sketch out for us What are the Christian options To view Bridging that gap Between the individual As a Christian And And a Christian living in a society that at least has an appearance of secularity, a government that resists legislating as a theocracy, what options do we have as Christians for viewing that situation?
1: I I view basically three broad categories, and I'm sure a more well-read and particular person could articulate these better, but... To give us just a basic sense, um, probably the the guiding question is, is government redeemable and can it be made subject to Christ? Mm -hmm. If your answer to that is actually no, um, you have a view of the civil state, whatever we want to call it, as... It is one of the monsters from Daniel's vision.
0: Uh-huh.
1: <laughs> that, it, that it will always be. And there, you know, there's some legitimacy to that. Yes. Right? If you're looking for images of human government in the Bible, they're rarely pretty pictures. Right. Uh, there's seven-headed dragons and other things. I mean, it's just not pretty. So you have this monstrosity, this Frankenstein monster created by man, not by God, uh, challenging the authority of God, Um, an irredeemable mistake Mm -hmm. instead of a simple Christian community living in God's service it is a attempt to secure the human realm against the judgment of God and in spite of it if that's what you view it then you you end up kind of in this camp that we might describe as um, from from the Protestant point of view we call it the Anabaptist camp Mm -hmm. which I'm in Churches of Christ we have a, a heritage coming out of the Anabaptist Movement, um, and up until probably World War Two, churches of Christ were pretty heavily pacifist. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, David Lipscomb was opposed to involvement in government, like in any way. Don't vote. Don't do anything. Um, his comparison for human government was Babel. I mean, that's right. that's what government is. And so, if you take that point of view, which I, I think tends to be a bit too pessimistic, mm-hmm. but if you take that point of view. Then what you want to do is simply uh, extract Christians from that realm Mm -hmm. and say, we're going to carry on our business in small communities, doing our thing, pretending the rest of the world. I don't want to say pretending it doesn't exist, because that's probably not fair either. But we're not going to be politically active. We're not going to focus on legislation. We're not even going to worry about legislation. We're not going to participate in political activity. Because our allegiance is to Christ exclusively, and not in any subordinate way to anything else. Right, and I want to so,
0: I want to throw in two other maybe flanking positions that are probably pretty familiar. I, I think when people think Anabaptist and think pacifist, the the easiest examples to think about would be, you know, that the the Amish and the Mennonites don't serve in the army. You think about people who yeah. won't salute the flag, you know, that kind of thing. And, and while that is an extreme, there are a lot of Christian groups who are from that tradition who don't bear quite so obvious uh, reservations about participating with the government in any way. Yeah. But, but two other things I'm thinking of as you're talking is, is first of all, I think— Within the Lutheran tradition, at least, you know, Luther sees two kingdoms. You have the kingdom of heaven, you have the kingdom yeah. of the world, and they're non-overlapping for the most part. So you get this sense, even if you, didn't, you haven't studied this theologically, you just kind of osmotically get this sense that you have the kingdom of the world and you have the kingdom of God. And that in some way or another, they are separately and independently existing. And one of the differences between these yeah. groups is what do you think the relationship of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is to the world that we actually live in right now? Which would lead me to bring up another group. I think the the prevalence of premillennial dispensationalism, which shorthand for that would be like the left behind books, have deposited yeah. into American Christianity, especially in the South. I mean, among Bible churches. Yeah. Uh, Southern Baptist congregations is this sense that, hey, you know what? All of this is going to go south way more than it is right now anyway. There's not a lot we can do. It's a pessimistic eschatology. And whether or not... I'm not saying anything about your actual eschatology. I mean, I'm not saying that that eschatology is wrong. But if you have that kind of ingrained in you, it creates a very dismissive, pessimistic view about what we're even capable of doing in reference to government anyway.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's that's a good example. Um, I, I hate to keep calling it pessimistic or cynical, but in, in my mind, that's kind of what it comes back to. And when I'm feeling the most pessimistic about our country, I tilt in that direction personally mm-hmm. because I, I can't do anything anyway. Um, I'll tell you the watershed moment in my own life. I was a fairly politically active Republican. And in, I forget the year, it was second term bush uh bush w w bush administration i think we had a republican president or let's say that differently we had a pro life president a pro life house and a pro life senate and a conservative leaning supreme court for like a 2 year stretch mm-hmm. and abortion was still the law of the land yeah and that just crushed me. Mm. I thought I thought the agenda was that when this happened, this was my eschatology, right? I was going to get pro-life people in every branch of government, and then something would happen. Mm-hmm. Now, you could say, Ben, be a political realist. It's not that simple. Sure, but it, it really crushed me personally, and I thought, does it actually matter then uh, if pro-life or pro-choice persons are in power and it doesn't actually change reality. Right. Um, maybe I just need to be part of a pro-life community mm-hmm. uh, of Christians and let the world do what it's going to do. And we'll just be a place that adopts children and, and takes in refugees and, and shows life to the world in our own way. Yeah. Um, and I'm really glad you brought that up because I, I don't
0: think that the majority of people who would say... You know what? The church and the state are completely separated. There's not a lot we can do. Um, we should seclude ourselves. Again, not not necessarily just the Amish. I mean, but 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 uh, Christians who say the best thing we can do is to withdraw. You see this a little bit in in what we're going to talk about next in the Benedict Option and those kinds of um, yeah. kind of middle examples. But a lot of it comes out of hurt not, you know, this sense of, well, I'm not going to extend my moral framework into the government. I don't think people arrive at a withdrawal position primarily because they believe that the government doesn't need morality. I think they arrive at that position because they believe that they're powerless to affect the kind of moral change that they want to bring to the government.
1: Yeah, I think that's the point of view, um, and here I'll dip one once more into World War II. Uh french pacifist in the countryside during world war ii uh they couldn't stop the nazis and they couldn't change the, the vichy regime and so they just took in jewish refugees instead
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah that that was their solution we can't do anything about it but we can hide jews in the basement right and, and that um you know you can understand that point of view they they couldn't stop a panzer so <laughs> what do you do mm-hmm. but um I don't know that our situation is, is quite like that, and that's uh, probably why I'm not quite one of those persons. Right. In the, the Catholic, so I've been talking about from the kind of Protestant point of view, in the Catholic world, the kind of ultimate example of this would be a monasticism. right? Which is literally a community built to do this. Mm-hmm. And, hey, God bless them, um, Western civilization survived chaos in Europe because of... The monastic tradition—they mm-hmm. uh, were planting crops and feeding people and reading books and hiding books, while the Hundred Years' War was going on and plague conquering the world. You know, uh, corruption in the papacy and in the bishopric and all that. And here are just these monks out there planting crops and taking care of people. Right. Um, it, it, it does. There is some virtue to having those ports of safety and peace. When the world goes completely mad, mm-hmm. but you almost have to believe the world has gone mad to do that, right. and I'm just not sure that that's where we're at. It's a it's kind of a doomsday scenario. It's it's the prepper version of Christianity, right? Um, the fallout shelter version. And <laughs> I, I'm just not sure we all have to go to the bunker quite yet, right?
0: So the first option, withdrawal. I think it spans many Christian traditions, but but probably originated in the Anabaptist tradition. What's the second option?
1: Um, so for me, and if, I'm trying to decide how we want to put this out in the spectrum, let me put two, two poles out there, and then we'll drop some people in between them. The opposite pole would be a government run by Christians in Christian faith, a a Christian kingdom, mm-hmm. uh, Christendom, would be kind of the opposite pole. That not only is the government redeemable, it is the task of Christianity to assert the rule of Christ over the affairs of man in every sphere, including government. Uh, so again, from the kind of the Roman Catholic point of view, you know you'd you'd want a uh, something akin to a theocracy. I mean, it would be a Holy Roman Emperor mm-hmm. you know, type situation. That would be kind of the extreme case. It's interesting that Roman Catholic doctrine gives us the extremes at either end, monastic or theocracy. Um, <laughs> yeah. Divine right of kings, right? Uh, whereas Protestants have ended up somewhere in the middle. And you have, um, our you and I share kind of a personal love of, of Kuiper. And um, here's a guy who's deeply involved in Politics, um, legislation, working within the government itself, and believes uh, his motto was a free church and a free state. Right. That you could put laws in place that codified Christian values to some level and then allowed the church to do its work of revitalizing civilization. And the government was the restrainer of evil and the supporter of the church.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, where, where we'll struggle with that is that there are days when the Anabaptists are right, and that, that yeah. hasn't worked out. <laughs> the The reason the Anabaptists came up with the... They're kind of the inventors of separation of church and state doctrine. Right. Because everywhere they went, their particular set of doctrines, anabaptist meaning they were telling people baptized in infancy to be baptized as an adult, uh-huh. uh, not a super popular thing in late medieval Europe. Yes. So they're being persecuted <laughs> in every region they live in. And their thought was, maybe we should just not have the church tied up in government so much so that a group of Christians teaching this particular doctrine could survive in Switzerland without being persecuted by the Swiss reformers and so forth. And so I think the question that comes for Kuiper then is um, how do you manage dissent? Um, Is it possible to have, and here I'm using the word liberal in a different way than we usually do, a liberal Christian society, Mm -hmm. a vaguely pluralistic Christian society? So you have Charlemagne, who's telling people, uh, I've conquered you, you will now be baptized or we'll be executing you. Right. I'm pretty sure that's not the Kuyperian solution. Yes. right? I mean, he doesn't want compulsory, coercive faith as if, as if that could exist. Right. right. Uh, so we're, we don't want that. that. That's the opposite pole. So Kuiper is a step back in the direction of uh, a liberal society that, as on the one hand not permitting there to be a realm where Christ is not Lord, but also, not mandating that every person in a society uh, behave as a believer in every sense, mm-hmm. but be free to do that. And that there is some minimal standard or threshold of public decency that Christianity mandates that can be measured and legislated. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we live by the code, well, you can't legislate. Morality. Yeah, um, I think Kuiper would say you can't legislate anything else. Right. You know, that's the only thing you can mandate is morality. Exactly. Every statement you make is a moral statement when it comes to do this or don't do that. Right. So of course we're going to legislate morality. Uh, that's just a it's an asinine statement to be perfectly honest. You can't legislate morality. Of course you can. Uh, so Kuiper says, let's just do a better job of it. Let's do it the way Christians would do mm-hmm. it, and acknowledge. That there is, a, there is a real world that is Christian, that cosmology is true, we're not going to mandate you live by it, but we're going to run our government as if it's true. Right. And finding that little niche in the political spectrum, I think, is really challenging to Christians to understand. Yeah. So, I mean, are you, are you going to outlaw, are you going to make blasphemy punishable? Mm-hmm. Um are, or to make it closer to home, are we going to have criminal um, penalties for abortion? Right. I mean, that's, that's a tough question for conservatives, mm-hmm. really. I mean, I, I think you and I are both fairly opposed to abortion. I'm not personally thrilled with the idea of locking up young mo- mothers who have had abortions. Right. Um. I'm not sure I feel the same way about doctors, but you know that's that's just me. Yes. But you know, how do you manage a society then based on basic Christian premises that doesn't become draconian? Yeah. And that's that's the challenge for me of Kuiper.
0: Yeah, I think you've described the tension really well. So I, part of the tension, I think, comes in seeing the spectrum and seeing the two poles as the only option. So you've you've got people that basically say the first option is the government is corrupt, it's irredeemable, and so we should just withdraw from it. And then you have modified versions of that position like the Benedict Option, monasteries. Yeah. Um, you do have some
1: interaction with those. but But basically they believe. What's the... Is it is it Hartgrove or what's the name of the fellow who does the like radical hospitality right. new monasticism movement Jonathan um,
0: Wilson Hartgrove
1: yeah him I mean that that's a version
0: of that really exactly. And I think if you think that, um, you have a set of options, and then, and then you say, well, okay, but, but what's the alternative? Because that's not really the world I want to live in. What's the alternative yeah. to that? And you jump immediately to the other side, and you say, Christians dictating every single feature of morality within a society yeah. Yeah. to where now it becomes illegal not to be a Christian and we have a theocracy. And, you know, there's people that it's like, well, that doesn't sound too bad. You know, at least we would have that. Yeah. And I think a yeah. legitimate question is, you know, why is it a Christian virtue? Why is it a Christian value to have pluralism? And we're not saying pluralism is in all religions actually lead to heaven. We're saying pluralism in the sense of you can worship however you want in this society. I think it's hard for people to grapple with the question of why is that kind of pluralism a good thing uh, in, in our society? And one of the things I would point to is the people that were coming to America to create that kind of society knew what it was like to live in that kind of society where Protestant Christianity was not the norm. So if you live under Sharia law, if you live um, through the wars going back and forth in, in England and Europe over Protestants and Catholics, you understand that yep. if you're just on the outs a little bit on doctrine, that kind of government is the worst kind of government. And so you have people yep. kind of seeking refuge from that, coming to America And what's interesting is you get the phrase separation of church and state from Thomas Jefferson, not in the Constitution, not in the Declaration of Independence. You get it in a letter that he's writing to the Danbury Baptist Association, assuring them that since there is a wall of separation between church and state, it's going to go better for them than it did in England for their fathers and and grandfathers and, and the people that came before them.
1: Yeah, How strange is that? I mean, it almost takes us down another avenue here, but but that the language of religious protection somehow became antagonistic to religion in our culture, and that is a a riddle I don't understand, but it, it may be because of this secular false premise that you could create a space that was plural because Christ was not in it, Instead of a space where freedom exists because Christ was generally recognized as Lord. Right. Um, And I think that there's a difference there, that Christians of the biblical variety believe in faith, and faith is not a compulsory action Mm -hmm. by definition.
0: You know, you hear people talk about the state as a coercive entity, And I think there's something really important about what you just said. If you expect, uh, like if you're you're pondering the question, is theocracy the best option? Part of the trouble that you run into is, okay, but what version of Christianity gets to run the theocracy? That's a problem from the get-go. But secondly, what kind of influence can the state actually have on individual people? And the influence that it has is primarily through coercion. And nowhere in the Bible do we see that coercion is a key to bringing people to faith in Jesus Christ.
1: Right. Right. I mean, the government, um, by definition, is a monopoly on the use of violence.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh,
1: That may be the most cynical way to describe it, but it is true. (laughs) I mean, if I went and shot someone, I would assume to be a, a murderer. If an officer of the state shoots someone, there may be a legitimate explanation for that. Right. And that, that difference on how we view the use of force, if, if government can exist, that's part of the definition. Right. Well, that's antithetical to Christian faith. It might be necessary to a society that is conducive to free life in Christian faith.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, you may, I, I don't know how to have a world without police officers where people also live in freedom and harmony. Right. Yeah, that's a great observation. But, but police officers can't produce faith. Mm-hmm. And that that tension is, I think, where we get stuck.
0: So I want to go back uh, biblically for a second and talk about, you know, how the Bible portrays government and then maybe work up to and comment on some of these options that are just kind of floating in the middle of the two poles that we've established. Um, First and foremost, I think you've named something that's kind of in the cultural waters of Christianity. And that is we trace government back to Babel. And I'm not sure that's the best place to begin talking about government. It's a good place to begin talking about culture. It's a good place to begin talking about idolatry I don't know that we need to see government through that as a monolithic vision of what government looks like. It's certainly a picture of corrupt government, corrupt culture, narcissism, idolatry, all of those things. But there are other places in the Bible where you see pictures of what government is, how Christians should view it, uh, that are probably a little bit more helpful.
1: Yeah, you and I read in graduate school uh, some Jacques Ellul Uh, in his theology of the city. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he would go so far as to trace it back to, like, Cain and uh, his sons and Lamech, and, you know, this is where all government comes from. I
0: I love that part of him, I got to admit. He he believes that Uh, Nimrod (laughs) is really where everything went wrong.
1: Yes, go back to (laughs) Nimrod, that's the problem. Um, And, and, you know, I get that. I think there's some validity to it, but... uh, maybe clearer pictures, uh, would be from two places. One, uh, the kingdom years of Israel. Mm -hmm. And I I understand, just quickly jump back in with my disclaimer, I'm not suggesting that the United States is equivalent or interchangeable with the Old Testament nation of Israel. But there is a reason that the biggest chunk of our Bible is spent telling the history of that state. Mm-hmm. That apparently there is something to be gleaned from that, uh, including both its terrible failures and its successes. Right. Um, so that, that'd be one touchstone I'd want to talk about. And the other would be the exile, and in particular Daniel, yes. who is a figure deeply ingrained in in a government hostile to his own faith mm-hmm. who somehow manages to be a transformative presence in that culture and in that government. Uh, another figure you could add would be Ezra and Nehemiah right. who both have connections to the government and yet bring about Jewish flourishing out of that.
0: Yeah, I think with all the, the, the situations that you just mentioned, probably the one other thing I would add is Paul's instruction about Christians and government in Romans, you see, you get this sense from every one of those examples that those people believe that even if the government is bad, morally, uh, structurally, anthropologically, and, and it certainly was. I mean, any problem we have in America today is an absolute cakewalk compared to what they were dealing with in Babylon in the time of Daniel. So... No. They see the government for what it is. It's a monster, but they believe that the government can be transformed. And here's kind of—this is one of the things I really think is a takeaway for Christians in government. It is the Bible presents the government in such a way that it in and of itself is not a transformative mechanism. It's a restraining mechanism. In some places, it's an oppressive mechanism— But the Bible never views the government as a transformative agent in the world. Instead, the Bible presents the Holy Spirit and the individual soul, the family, and the church as the transformative mechanisms of society. So you get someone like Daniel, for example, who doesn't expect that the government is going to transform people into being good Israelites but he does believe that the government can be better than it currently is, commanding idolatry and all of those things. And the solution for him is his personal, faithful commitment to God and the practice of the things that God has commanded are going to lead to the transformation of the government itself.
1: Yeah, I think, uh, so I'll both criticize and, and laud the work of James Smith, Uh, who has essentially said this, that the human is a worshipping creature, and when that worshipping creature takes his place in public life, it is a transformative influence.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh,
1: And so when Daniel throws up his windows and prays to God anyway, lion's dinner, no, that's a transformative force for good. Mm -hmm. Now the criticism of Smith is, I don't know how Daniel voted, and I right. don't know. <laughs> <laughs> like I still, I would still like to know some public policy decisions. Yes, you made. I'm a little confused about that. Um, or Joseph, you know how how exactly did they what how, what taxation rate led to the collection of grain in Egypt in preparation for the famine years? Yeah, that's a great question. Kind of but in, in any event, you know I, that it is somehow possible for the Christian to be a transformative presence in the culture in the government and that the government can be better if we don't expect it to be the the arm of the lord in the way that the church is or the family is and that I don't know if the, I don't know if that goes to marx or well I, I don't know where we trace that thought to yeah that the government is ultimately the right making Institution. It is the justice-insuring institution, not the restraining, keep things from getting too bad that we kill each other institution, right. but the actual insurer of uh, utopia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think certainly Marxist
0: thought is influential there. I think um, the the rise of any kind of socialist political theory needs a government that has a more outsized role than just restraining in order to function. Um, And it is a good question, probably one that's its own podcast in and of itself as to how Christians came to adopt that when Christians primarily are not Marxists, uh, at least in my, in my (laughs) observation. Um, Well,
1: I thought not, but uh, yeah.
0: Yeah. So I want to go back to Kuiper for a second and I almost said Piper, which would be fun to talk about, but I want to go back to to Abraham Kuyper for a second and, and examine that. So I, I think some of the way that we make progress is by rejecting the fact that we start with the government. So if we're going to talk about church and state, we're going to talk about faith and the government, secularity, legislation. Let's resist the urge to start with public policy and legislation, let's instead, and I think this is the brilliance of what Kuiper was doing, even in areas that he got it wrong, I think this move is important. Let's start with the individual believer. Since that was, that's what we have most control over anyway, is let's say, what is the individual believer's role as it pertains to civic life? Well, one of the things that we can mention is that one of the roles of the believer is to do the right thing inside of God all the time. We can all agree on that. You must do as an individual person what your conscience and the Holy Spirit tell you biblically informed to do in society. Namely, love God with everything you are and love your neighbor as yourself. So we start there. Then we Sounds can, like a
1: good starting place. We can move
0: <laughs> out from there and we can say there's all these other things that you should do. We can talk about how you should treat your neighbors as far as what it means to love them. You know, all of that kind of thing. And I think what Kuiper is going to say is, if every Christian in the country would do that, then when you get to the place where Christians really do have the power to actually run the country, when they get to make laws, when they get to vote, that kind of thing, they each get to do what is right individually in their conscience. And we trust that the Holy Spirit is going to guide things in such a way that if those all add up to policy and legislation decisions, that those will actually corporately be honoring to God.
1: Yeah. Uh, I think, you know, I have a fascination in the world of ethics with what's called virtue ethics. Mm-hmm. And as opposed to kind of a deontological ethics that says, you know, I, I need to know how to vote on this ballot right now. I need a divine law from heaven in this instance. Um, virtue ethics would say uh, people becoming better people will know what to do generally in those situations. Right. People, more Christ-like people, will make better decisions. Uh, and, and that, I think, is, is legitimate. I think your point about the, the individual faith, I happen to have my little Bible app open to 1 Timothy 2, uh, familiar passage where Paul talks about prayer for kings and all who are in high positions, mm-hmm. that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. The next sentence, this is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So the actual good goal is individual people coming to the knowledge of the truth of Christ's reign over the universe. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Next sentence, for there is one God. (laughs) Right. Right. Um, But the government's role in that is to provide a... Quiet world uh, mm-hmm. to a world where Christianity can flourish, not to actually bring about the rule of Christ, but to act in a way that permits people to come to that knowledge, and then Christ does all the heavy lifting. That's always been the plan, right? Uh, yeah, I think. So I think depending on people acting out of faith, and and we can add showing some charity to each other. Um, Economic theory is kind of difficult. Mm-hmm. Tax laws, tax policy is kind of difficult. Mm-hmm. I don't expect all Christians to have a clear sense of all of those issues. Uh, you can sit and just, you can lose a week toss, talking to a policy wonk about, you know, uh, regressive tax policy and this kind of tax policy. Right. And, and what's better for, you know, economics and all that or... Anyway, I'm not necessarily asking that all Christians believe in that in the same way I would or don't. Um, we can have some charity to each other in hopes that people becoming more Christ-like will generally make good decisions. That being the goal. Mm-hmm. That when you go to the ballot, you'll know the best thing you can do because you become the most Christ-like you can be. Absolutely. And that the government has made that possible.
0: I think that's a good step towards a recovery of of the relationship that we should have with the state without falling into either of the, the pits of creating this space where it's a, an amoral reality for the government and, on the other hand, uh, uh, basically designing a, an oppressive theocracy that's trying to use the wrong mechanism to bring about the right ends. So we think, you know, we'll... The questions would be, well, how are we ever going to get anything done then? And and I don't think anything that we're saying prohibits lobbying, prohibits uh, Christian mm-hmm. causes. I, I don't see this as contradictory to any of that, but I think it provides one layer below that to say, if our goal in society is that uh, we want people to become transformed into the image of Christ, we want people to trust Christ, then what we're implicitly saying is, the major transformative mechanism in our society is not the government it's the gospel and not to say that in a cheap way that means we don't have anything to do with government but to say that if we want something to do with government it's people who have been transformed by the gospel who are going to have the biggest impact